Good morning again. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. That will be our sermon text for this morning, Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. And uh, before we read God's Word together, would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the gospel of your Son. We thank you for the message of salvation. We pray, Father, that you would come and be with us now, that you would work in our hearts to give us ears to hear, and eyes to see, and uh, minds to understand, and hearts to receive what you have written in your word. Uh, work in us by your Spirit, Father. Give me words to say. Give me true words to say. Protect me from saying things that are untrue or out of accord with the Scriptures so that your message would clearly go forth, uh, that the gospel of your Son would be heard, and that you would draw men and women closer to yourself through Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to convince anyone of anything of which they don't want to be convinced? 
We like to think that people are basically logical and rational, but the truth is even the most logical and the most rational uh, people are guided by their own will and their own affections, which shape the way they receive the most basic data of life. We tend to, to twist and turn the truth. We, we abuse it and misuse it. We manipulate it for our own purposes. We spin it in ways that suit our own agenda. Now, we don't always even realize that we're doing this. We, ha we have reasons right, for not believing or believing what we do. We have grounds. We have statistics. But underneath our excuses and our rationale and our arguments is some controlling desire, some inordinate love, some unruly affection that's guiding us, directing our hearts and minds. It may not even be a desire for a bad thing, mind you, right? It may be the affection of motherly love or the desire for respect and recognition or the love of pleasure and delight. These are, are good things in themselves, natural things, but easily twisted things. And when twisted, they hijack our thoughts, they commandeer our logic, they, they take control of our reasoning. And so you, you have the mother who will not believe that little Johnny got into a fight because he is a bully, but insists that he is the victim when all the world can see that that is not true. Or you have the proud businessman who says his numbers are slipping, not as his manager suggests, because he is somehow slipping in his performance, but he insists because the boss always gives him the hard, low-paying jobs. See, we, we find that what is driving us is not, is this statement true, but is this statement convenient? Uh, not do I understand it, but do I like it? And suddenly we find we, we cannot believe the truth because we will not believe the truth. And so it's, it's not a lie to say, I will not believe that because it doesn't make sense. But it's just as true to say, it doesn't make sense because I will not believe it. And this is why Jesus says, take care then how you hear. Or why he, he seems to feel compelled to say again and again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus isn't questioning that we have ears on our heads. And he's not questioning whether they work. Right? Whether sound is, is coming in through our ear canal and vibrating our eardrums to send a signal to our brains to produce a sensation we call sound. If that's even the way ears work, I have no idea. But Jesus is exhorting us to hear rightly. Be careful how you hear. It's a similar metaphor to one Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And see, Jesus there uses another sense organ, right, in essentially the same way. A blind man has eyes, but those eyes let in no light. A deaf man has ears, but those ears let in no sound. And Jesus is asking us implicitly, is your mind's eye blind? Is your mind's ear deaf? See, there's a way of seeing without ever perceiving. There's a way of hearing without ever understanding. And it's not because the bulb is burnt out or the radio isn't working, but because we have become like one who is blind and deaf, because our hearts have become hard, because our hearts are blind 
because our hearts are deaf. Take care then how you hear. It really makes all the difference in the world. Now we are studying the book of Acts right now. Uh, Acts is a record of Jesus laying the foundation of his church. Uh, he does that through the, the witness of his apostles. They were the, the, the men who were designated as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And they are bearing witness to Jesus risen from the dead and proclaiming, therefore, that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, the King of heaven and earth. And in Acts, we are watching Jesus lay the church's foundation through these apostles in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and now uh, even to the ends of the earth. Particularly here, as, as Paul, as we've seen, has been planting churches in modern-day Turkey and Greece. And, and one of the things that we see is not just what Paul preaches and how Paul preaches, but we also see how people respond to Paul's preaching, how people hear. And what we're going to look at this morning is, is two and even three ways of hearing the word. So we're going to talk about, uh, on the one hand, prejudiced rejection, uncritical acceptance, and then finally, eager examination. And of course, that's what I'm going to commend to you this morning, eager examination of the scriptures. I would commend that even now, even as you hear me speak, that you would be testing what I say by what is found in the Bible. But first, we're going to look at prejudice rejection. Uh, Acts 17, uh, in Acts 17, Paul continues his second missionary journey. He left Philippi at the end of Acts 16. He passes through Amphipolis and Apollonia. He comes to Thessalonica. And as was Paul's custom, he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with those whom he finds there. He reasons with them from the scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Now he would do this uh, most likely by going to what we call the Old Testament, right? He's reasoning from the scriptures. And he would go to passages uh, that we see he goes to elsewhere in his letters like Genesis 22 or Psalm 22 or Psalm 110 or Isaiah 53. Or he would show uh, from elsewhere that there's a pattern in the Old Testament of suffering before glory. We see that in, in places like Israel's exodus out of slavery and into the promised land. Or, or their return from exile back into the promised land. And, and some of the Thessalonians were persuaded by this. In fact, writing shortly after this visit in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Or 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so some were persuaded, verse 4, and they joined Paul and Silas. Uh, salvation always means joining the people of God, and, and that is what those who believed did. They joined Paul and Silas, and, and some were persuaded, some believed, but not all. And what we find in verses 5 through 9 is really an example of a, a prejudiced rejection of the gospel. 
There are certain things that get in the way here of uh, first the Jews and then the, the city authorities believing the gospel. And uh, we're going to look at three of those things. Uh, one is prior commitments. One is their, their personal cost. And three is, is just plain fear. All of those are really kind of different perspectives on the same kind of thing. Uh, but prior commitments, personal cost, and fear. Uh, first, prior commitments. In, a, in verse 5, we're told that the Jews were jealous. The word jealousy could be translated two different ways. You, you may know this. It could be translated jealousy or zeal. Either one would be a legitimate translation. And some commentators believe it should be zeal here. That when Paul took converts away from the synagogue, he took them away from God's law. He took them away from Yahweh, they believed. And the reason the Jews reject the message of Paul the reason they persecute him is their zeal for Judaism, their zeal for the Old Testament, their zeal for the law. And you see, some people reject the gospel because of what they, they think they know. For the Jews here, it's because of their zeal for their, their old religion, for what they already believe. They're saying, I already have it figured out. You don't have to tell me anymore. Uh, you don't have to add anything to what I already know. Don't contradict me. Don't say I'm wrong. Uh, don't question what I believe. I have it right. They're unwilling to even listen, to entertain what Paul is saying. Are you unwilling to hear the claims of Jesus because of some prior commitment? It may be a religious commitment, but it may not be. It may be a philosophical commitment. It may be a political commitment. Maybe a personal commitment. But you have this commitment to something or someone and you think, Jesus doesn't fit with this, so I'm not even going to investigate. I'm not even going to listen to what he has to say. Have you, ever, have you already closed your mind to the possibilities because you've already decided that you already know what's true? You don't have to investigate further. You don't have to look into matters. But at what point does it become, right, don't confuse me with the facts. I don't, I don't want to hear them. You've arrived at a determination, but not because you've examined all the evidence, not because you've read the scriptures with an open mind, but because you have these prior commitments, and those commitments are, are, are comfortable for you. And the thought that you might have been wrong all this time, well, that's too discomforting. Or, or sometimes, even worse, the thought that your friend might have been wrong all this time is too discomforting. Whatever the case, you have this zeal for what you believe and so a prejudice against even listening to the gospel, even entertaining the possibility. And so prior commitments often, often prejudice us against the gospel. Not because they prove it wrong, but because, but because really deep down, simply because what you, it's not what you've always believed. And what you believe works for you. The second thing that prejudices us against the gospel is the personal cost. Uh, maybe that word in verse 5 shouldn't be translated zeal. Maybe it should be translated, as it is in the ESV, jealousy. What this means is that, that some of the Jews persecuted Paul, uh, not because of his message, not, not, not because they disagreed with what he said, but because by his message he leads people away from them. See, it's, it's true jealousy, right? They're, they're jealous of Paul's popularity and how that takes away from their own, right? You, you can imagine what they're thinking, right? You're, you're pilfering our people. You're carrying off our converts. You're stealing our sheep. Th those people used to look up to us. We had influence in their lives. 
And here you come with the gospel and start messing things up. I don't like it when people come and start messing my world up. But can I be honest? The gospel does mess things up. The gospel does not leave everything intact. It costs us, and, and it will especially cost us power and influence as these men had. The gospel is costly. Grace is costly. It's one of those, it's one of those paradoxes of the gospel, right? Uh, that the gospel is simultaneously free grace that costs everything. You can't earn it, but you must give up everything for it. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your lives for his sake, you will find it. Jesus in the gospel wants to give us a whole new life. But as long as we cling to the old one, your hands are full. You can't have two lives. You must give up the one in order to receive the other. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You want rest? Right? Jesus offers it to you for free. But you have to come to him. Does that cost seem too high? Jesus told a parable, you, you may remember it, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Is the grace of God so sweet to you that you would be willing to give everything up for it? Or does that cost seem just too high? Oftentimes, any cost seems too high, right? We're not, we're not even willing to consider that there might be something so valuable, something so worth it, that we would be willing to have our lives messed up and shaken up and turned on their head in order to get it. And so what is so dear to you that you would say to Jesus, no, Jesus, not that, right? anything but that? How would you finish this sentence? I would never become a Christian if I would have to give up what? I've actually had people say that to me. I can think of two people in particular who said that very sentence to me and finished it. And it, it, I think it was a moment of clarity for both of them. And, and one of them, shortly after making that statement, became a Christian. They, they gave it up and they turned to Jesus. They, they realized what stood in the way and they realized that's not worth it. The other one over the years has lost that thing and all the joy that it gave them, but still has no Christ, which is really a warning, right? Whatever you will not give up for Jesus, it won't last. When it is gone, what will you have then? See, prior commitments tend to prejudice us against the gospel, the personal cost tends to prejudice, prejudice us against the gospel. And finally, fear does the same thing. Uh, the Jews eventually gather a mob and they, they start a riot and they go to the city officials and they bring charges against uh, Paul as, as continually happens through the second half of Acts, though Paul's not there at the time. And those charges are that they're stirring up trouble, right? They're causing a riot. They're teaching that there's another king besides the Roman emperor. And of course, like all good lies, this is a half-truth. They are teaching that there is another king, King Jesus. 
The fact that Jesus is a king, which, which is a king is a kind of civil ruler, right? The fact that Jesus is a king, that fact does have implications for us within the civil sphere, within the political world. It's just not the implications that they were drawing. They suggest, therefore, they're stirring up trouble, they're causing a riot, maybe even trying to overthrow Rome. But actually, King Jesus tells us to submit to the governing authorities that are over us. There are political implications for following Jesus. They just aren't the political implications that Paul's accusers draw out. See, they're drawing these out to falsely accuse Paul because of their jealousy. In fact, of course, ironically, you'll notice they are the ones stirring up the trouble. And they do it not only here in Thessalonica, but they'll follow Paul to Berea to do it again. Well, what happens? What happens is the, the, the rulers and the citizens are disturbed, verse 8. See, they have concerns about this. They don't, they don't have the same concerns as the, the Jews, right? Theirs uh, were, were zeal and jealousy. But the concern of the city officials is political, right? It comes down to fear. They're motivated by fear. If we let these people teach these things in our town, what will Rome think? What will Rome do if they hear there's an insurrection beginning here in Thessalonica? You know, Satan wants us to live in fear. He knows that if we are afraid of being wrong or afraid of losing our lives, if we are afraid of man and what people will think and what will happen if, that fear will likely stop us from listening to the truth. Because we're going to do everything we can simply to maintain, right? to, to keep the status quo. It may not be great, right? but we are afraid that it could get worse. And Satan loves it when we live in fear and pursue the status quo rather than being open to what God has to say to us. These, these city officials, they weren't open at all to the message of the gospel. They just wanted to make sure no one rattled the boat in their town. Think about all of these folks in the beginning of Acts 17, right? They're, they're holding on to something other than the gospel. Those who reject the gospel, of course, some do believe here, but those who reject it are holding on either uh, to, to the thought that they have it right. right? I, I'm right. I've got, I've got to be right. I've always been right. I always will be right. Nothing uh, you can say will change my mind, often because I feel the need to be right, because I get from that rightness a sense of my own righteousness. And they'll hold on to being right all the way down into hell. Or jealousy, right? They refuse to let go of the idea that they should have the influence. They should have the followers. And they hold on to the influence. They hold on to life, some aspect of this life. And we refuse to let go of life. We refuse to accept the cost. We hold on to our lives for all that it's worth, even if in the process we end up losing them. But that's what happens, right? When we try to cling to life, we lose it. Why do we close, cling to those things in that way? Out of fear, right? We're afraid. What will happen if I'm wrong? What will happen if I admit, maybe I've been wrong all this time? What will happen if I give up my life? What will happen if I let this go? I'm afraid of what might happen. I'm afraid of what might come. I'm afraid of the repercussions of believing this message. And of course, here's where, 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 where the logic of grace becomes counterintuitive, it's only when you are willing to be wrong and admit that you are wrong that you end up being right. 
It's only when you're willing to let go of life and everything that constitutes life in this age that you find it, true life in Jesus. If anyone saves his life, he will lose it. If anyone loses his life for Jesus' sake, he will find it. That's, that's sort of the counterintuitive principle here, right? We must admit that we are wrong to be on the side of truth. We must be willing to lose our lives to find them. So we, we, we can't come to God's word, right, with this prejudice, rejection, holding on to these things, living out of fear. Okay, then how ought we to come? What am I suggesting? Suggesting. Uh, we tend to think, well, if it's not prejudiced rejection, then, then I must be saying that we should come just with an uncritical acceptance. Right? This is the second point. It'll be very brief. There are some people, right, not like the Bereans, who we're going to look at in just a moment, they just accept whatever their pastor says as true. Right? It's just completely uncritical acceptance. Uh, th- that's actually not the right way of approaching the gospel either. That's not the right way of approaching the teaching of men. Because guess what? I might be wrong. I would encourage you, right, as, as LeVar Burton did on Reading Rainbow, right? Remember that? Don't take my word for it. Whatever authority I have as a preacher of the gospel, it's derivative. It does not originate with me. It's derived from God and from the scriptures. And so if what I am teaching you is inconsistent with what the Bible teaches, then I'm wrong. Don't listen to me. But if what I am teaching you is consistent with what the Bible says, then you better listen, because in that case, my words carry divine authority, not because they're mine, but because they are consistent with the message of the Bible. And what that means is uh, you, you don't just accept whatever I say. Right? Listening to sermons cannot be passive or else you'll likely be duped. I hope not by me. But, you know, I'm going to get some things wrong. And the longer I'm here and the longer you're here, the more likely it is that I'm going to say something to you that's not true. That doesn't mean you should go church hopping, but you get the point. (laughs) It means you need to search the Scriptures to see whether these things are so. The Bereans are neither, uh, on the one hand, they, they, they neither uh, have this prejudice, rejection of the gospel, but nor do they have this just uncritical acceptance. They, they fall into neither of these false worldly extremes, but a third way that is different from either, and that is eager examination. You know, Paul is run out of town in, in Thessalonica. He moves on to Berea with Silas, and Paul is doing his regular thing. He goes into the synagogue. Now, I think that's striking uh, right away. Note, note Paul's patience. Town to town, he, he goes in, he preaches in the synagogue, and he gets kicked out of the synagogue and of the town as a result. But he keeps going back. We should have that same kind of patience with those who need the gospel, right? where, where we relentlessly go to them in love, even when we're rejected, even when we are turned away. We keep trying, knowing that God is at work in this. The Bereans are are Jews, just like the Thessalonians, but we're told that they are more noble than the Thessalonians in verse 11. They receive the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul teaches are true. And from looking at the response of the Bereans, there there are, are two things that we must examine. On the one hand, we must examine ourselves 
And on the other hand, we must examine the Scriptures. So first, examine yourself. The first question we can ask ourselves is, are we eager? Are we eager? Are you expecting God to speak? Uh, These men were eager, excited to receive the gospel. They were ready to hear God speak in his word. When you come to God's word, do you come with the eager anticipation that, that, that God is going to speak to you through his word? Are you hungry to search out the truth? Second, are you, are you submissive, right? Are you coming to submit your reason to that of Scripture? Does the Word of God have the final say in what you believe? Notice they receive Paul's Word with eagerness, which turns them to examining the Scriptures to see if these things were so. They don't receive Paul's Word and think, well, let's have a think about this. What do you think? What do I think? What do we think together, right? What, what they, what they, it wasn't whether they liked Paul's message or not. It wasn't whether it seemed right to them or not. They subjected Paul's message to God's word. They examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. You know, there are lots of of kooky teachings out there, even from people claiming the name of Jesus. Do you test everything by God's word? Which doesn't mean, did this teacher quote the Bible, right? Even Satan quoted scripture to Jesus in the wilderness, Plausible lies are always those that have a little bit of truth in them, which makes them the more dangerous. Do you test everything by God's word? Of course, that means you have to know the teaching of God's word well enough to test everything by it. You have to be studying and searching the scriptures. And so one, are you eager, eager to hear from God? Are you submissive to what God has to say? Three, slightly differently, are you humble? Are you willing to submit to the truth of Scripture, no matter who you are? Not just to understand it, but to to take that next step to believe and to obey. Uh, Look at verse 12. In verse 12, many of them in Berea therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. See, not only Jews, but Greeks. Not, Not just any Greeks, but some Greek women of high standing. Actually, we saw the same uh, back in verse 4. Not a few leading women in Thessalonica were persuaded, where not a few is Luke's way of saying quite a lot. (laughs) And the point is that people in high positions, people like Theophilus, to whom Luke writes, were humbling themselves before the message of Jesus as Lord. And so examine yourself, right? Are you eager? Do you have a desire to hear from God? Are you submitting your reasoning to Scripture? Are you humble enough to believe what you find, whatever it is? Of course, you must not only examine yourself, but that will lead to, naturally, examining the Scriptures. How do you approach the Scriptures like the Bereans? Well, first, you you, you put in effort. Note the word examine itself, right? If... if, uh, If you're not just going to reject or accept out of hand whatever it is that the pastor says, you must examine the scriptures to see if it is true. That means you must put in effort. You you, you can't examine the scriptures passively. You won't test everything by scripture inactively. It takes discipline. It takes effort to study what God's word says and look at all things through that lens. Second, 
so not only uh, putting in effort, but of course, opening your Bible. It's not just effort in itself, right? Again, they, they didn't just try really hard to hope that maybe they could figure out whether what Paul said was true or not. Uh, they tested it by Scripture. They put in effort and opened their Bibles. And third, they, what we need to do is, is develop this habit, to develop a habit. Notice, how often do these folks examine the Scriptures? They do it daily. Uh, the, the exhortation, of course, either expressly or by example, to study Scripture daily is not unique to this passage of Scripture. It's not just, well, these Bereans, they were a little bit weird. They read the Bible every day. But, you know, that's not for everybody. No. Uh, think about all of Scripture exhorts us to this end. Uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 uh, say, Blessed is the man uh, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The idea is there all the time. Joshua 1.8, God's command to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The point is all the time. You should be talking about this, thinking about this, meditating on this. The early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching as they met day by day in Acts 2. God's word must be our continual, daily, regular, constant meditation. We must develop the habit of continually searching the scriptures every day, day and night, day by day, when we sit, when we walk, when we lie down, and when we rise up. If we are to examine scriptures like, like the Bereans, right, we must put in effort, open our Bibles, develop this habit of studying God's word, which is all to say we must be intentional. Uh, you, you don't test what you hear by accident. Most of us don't just naturally have this internal theology alarm that goes off whenever we hear false teaching. We must proactively study scripture to see if these things are so. Now, I do want to give one qualification here. Uh, I, I think you ought to be testing what I'm saying against the teaching of Scripture. That is not the same as waiting for your pastor to screw up. <laughs> I hope you are not sitting there on the edge of your seat each week just waiting for me to say something wrong so you can nail me to the wall. That's not what the Bereans were doing. They were eagerly, they eagerly received the words of Paul, even as they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. And so there is this eager openness to hear and at the same time attesting everything against the teaching of scripture. All right, three closing things. One. Uh, everything that we're saying about listening and hearing well is true, not just for the person hearing the gospel for the first time. This is important for Christians as well. Hopefully you picked up on that. Right? There, there are still pockets of lies that we believe. And it's important that we are continually bringing our thoughts, bringing our beliefs, bringing our, our hearts, our agendas, our presuppositions, and continually bringing them before the bar of God's word. And judging them and determining whether we need to repent of our old beliefs, our old ways, our old fears, and seek to trust and rest in our Savior afresh. 
So this is important for both the Christian and the non-Christian. But you still might ask, why is it so important that we, we spent a whole sermon talking about hearing rightly? Well, one reason is because according to the Bible, the word of God is the words of life. So Psalm 119 says, God's word is a lamp to our feet. God's word gives us wisdom and understanding in how to live in this world. Also in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, give me life according to your word. In fact, that phrase, give me life, I think it's found 11 times in scripture. 10 of them are in the Psalms and all 10 are in Psalm 119. <laughs> give me life. The other time is in Job somewhere. But give me life. And every time it's give me life according to your promises. Give me life in your word. Give me life according to your commands. Again and again and again. Give me life according to your word. The word of God not only gives light but also life. In fact, Peter says to Jesus, you may remember at one point, uh, some, some of the disciples are leaving Jesus. And Jesus says to them, are you going to go as well? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. Why is it so important to hear rightly? Because the word of God is what gives us life and light. Why else? Well, finally, what is it that we need to hear? You know, we've seen how to hear right, with eager examination. We, I just told you why, because the word of God gives light and life. Uh, so what is it? What is this word that gives light and life? Well, this word is the gospel. The, the good news that, that, that Paul preached is the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world to go to the cross to bear our sin in our place that we might find forgiveness and life in Him. This word is the, the good news that this Jesus not only went to the cross and went to the grave, but He rose again as King, conquering sin and death. And He now rules as King, as Lord of heaven and earth, and will reign forever and ever. What that, is, what that means is we are now called to acknowledge Jesus as king and submit to him as our Lord. Now, you may not be a Christian and you may not believe anything that I've just said. And so how would you know if the Bible is the word of life? How would you know if this gospel is true? Well, let me encourage you to take up and read Take up the scriptures and read them with an open mind, praying as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.18, praying for God to enlighten the eyes of your heart. And then as you hear that message rightly, acknowledge Jesus as King of heaven and earth, believe in him, submit to him, and live for him to the glory of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that we have so many reasons that we we try to ignore your word. We try to ignore the, the plain teaching of it. We try to dismiss it or set it aside or, or talk about it endlessly so we never have to be confronted by it and obey. Father, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, that we would uh, be like the Bereans, ready to submit our thoughts, our hearts, our lives to your word. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would understand, believe, and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.